Welcome to Into Africa. My name is Judd Devermont. I'm the director of the Africa program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I was the National Intelligence Officer for Africa and worked at the National Security Council. This is a podcast where we talk politics and challenge paradigms. On deck today, African governments and the region's pop stars condemn the recent outbreak of xenophobic violence in South Africa. Why does this continue to happen? And Pope Francis visits Mozambique, Madagascar, and Mauritius, where he talked up climate change and warned against corruption. Why is Sub-Saharan Africa important to the future of Catholicism? Plus, we discuss how African creatives are using music, film, photography, and literature to present a more dynamic portrait of life across the continent. Should the United States up its public diplomacy game to engage with the region's creative talent? So whether you have a history with the continent or you're a newcomer, we want to get you into Africa. In September, South Africa attacked African migrants working in Johannesburg. This was not the first time. There's been several outbursts of xenophobic violence in South Africa before, but this one garnered a lot of attention because South Africa's neighbors responded. Nigeria, the continent's heavyweight, condemned the attacks. Now I'd like to condemn the violence that has been spreading around a number of provinces in our country in the strongest terms. The attacks on people who run businesses from foreign nationals is something that's totally unacceptable. It's something that we cannot allow uh, to happen in South Africa. And so joining me today to talk about the xenophobic riots in South Africa and other topics is Fatih Abubakar, who is an independent photojournalist and posts on Instagram as Bits of Borno, Lindsay Green-Sims, an associate professor of literature at American University, and Mike Calambra Achode, the founder of Crudavolta, which is an independent collective that documents the development of contemporary music scenes of the African diaspora through documentaries, publications, and other graphic mediums. Okay, Fatih, as a Nigerian, what have you thought about the response to the violence? President Buhari condemned it, right? He offered that he was going to evacuate about 600 Nigerians. He's going to go to South Africa to talk to President Ramaphosa. And at the same time, there's been these reprisals in Nigeria attacking Pick and Pay and ShopRite, which are Niger- uh, South African stores. So what do you think about it? Why does this continue to happen, particularly for Nigerians in South Africa? As a Nigerian, for me, mostly when I go to some countries, there's always this distrust and a little bit of disdain that you feel because obviously because of our reputation. And we, I would believe, are very successful wherever we go. And we kind of try to, we are overachievers is what I can say. And there's a little bit of a disdain sometimes we feel from other nationalities. And I personally I'm happy that the president has officially condemned this. Previously on social media, Nigerians have been complaining about the xenophobic attacks, but we didn't feel supported by the government. The Ministry of Foreign Affairs, uh, BKW, is speaking heavily against it. Jeffrey Nyama is also speaking against it. So we're happy with the response this time, and there's also air peace evacuating people. So this is a different response that what, than what we're seeing. And I, I read this morning that the South African and is also and is uh, going to Nigeria to apologize. It's an apology tour. Yes. <laughs> so to kind of uh, apologize and also to discuss um, unity between Nigerians and South Africans. And we look forward to seeing more of that. 
Yeah, I think it's definitely the right move, both on President Buhari to condemn it. He's supposed to talk to President Ramaphosa and the other side, the the envoys that are going to Nigeria. I think this got a lot of attention this time, in part because this is Ramaphosa's first real foreign policy challenge, because it disrupted the World Economic Forum in Cape Town. But really interesting to me was the response by athletes and by musicians. So both Mozambique and Zambia decided to boycott upcoming soccer matches with South Africa. And then a bunch of musicians who I really like, maybe Fatih, you share my affinity to them, but Burna Boy and Don Jazzy, Wizkid, Yemi Alade, amongst others, you know, went onto social media and they and they really tried to call attention to this problem. And Mike, you know, one of our theses here at CSIS is that the continent's creatives are becoming a real power to reckon with when it comes to social, economic, and political affairs. You you work with the diaspora hip-hop scene. Does that resonate with you? And it's probably an important question about what should the role of artists be in terms of in politics? I think we are in a stage in a African youth culture or youth music where artists are receiving increasingly uh, intentional uh, attention. I've seen on mainstream uh, artists for the first time, let's say in the mainstream scene, uh, assume a certain political position unprecedentedly. So I'm slightly concerned when these, uh, when the, the blurry between politics and music happen because often artists seem to don't carry the, uh, the sufficient uh, the sufficient baggage, the sufficient cultural baggage, and the sufficient, um, how can I say, uh, rhetoric to uh, uh, illustrate and elaborate their the political positions. Uh, the situation in South Africa is a very complex. It's not possible to face on social media with a simple tweet as Berna Boy has done through his conversation with AKA. And it's interesting enough that artists like Berna Boy they have condemned the attack and at the same time they have found voice with a conversation from uh, Julius Malema on campus, for example. That's, that's an interesting conversation to have. My concern is that while artists are trying to position themselves in terms of brand, in, in terms of uh, public speakers, in terms of catalyst of content, uh, they are not necessarily in a political intellectual position to to embrace a certain opinion or to voice a certain opinion. I'm not sure if that uh, approach is uh, feasible and acceptable with a certain uh, African artist because the interdependency uh, between politics and music is not, is not that strong. I think you're touching on some really important issues. I mean, first of all, the the symmetry between the double-edged sword sometimes of, of weighing in very complex issues with simplistic tweets, but also the galvanizing, the mobilization that can happen with that. And then you addressed uh, a point that I wanted to raise, which was was Julius Malema. So Julius Malema is the leader of the Economic Freedom Fighters, and his comment was really interesting. So he wanted to refocus the conversation away from attacks on African migrants. And he, he said on Twitter, our anger is directed at the wrong people. Like all of us, our African brothers and sisters are selling their capital labor for survival. The owners of our wealth is white monopoly capital. They're refusing to share it with us, and the ruling party ANC protects them. So a very 
know, inflammatory comment, um, which, you know, Malema is increasingly famous for. But, you know, Lindsay, your recent work has been on LGBTQ individuals, which are also often depicted as other targeted and ostracized. And um, maybe it's a stretch to talk about both of these communities, but I just thought you might have some reactions to what's happening and maybe some potential remedies. Yeah, no, I don't think it's a stretch at all. And I'm actually really grateful for that question and that phrasing. Um, And I think there's also the question of gender-based violence and South Africans themselves have been very forthright about combining and understanding the xenophobic attacks and the gender-based violence as being part of the same problem, right? There was the protest a few days ago to shut down Stanton. There were pickets outside of the Johannesburg Stock Exchange, um, and they were protests against both, against the gender-based violence and against the xenophobic attacks. There's also the um, Chukamisa Coalition, which is a coalition of over 60 organizations that are working against sexual violence. And they wrote an open letter that basically said, we're disappointed. You failed to announce funding for state responses to gender-based violence, to violence against women and children, and to violence against the LGBT community. So their critique was, you know, you've, you've announced no bail and stricter sentencing to perpetrators and people that are caught. But they're, you know, also part of their critique was like, oh, many people aren't caught, mm-hmm. right? And so what can we do structurally? And there's also the issue that a lot of LGBT people from other African countries have sought asylum. Because the constitution is is much more inclusive. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. So there's this idea that, you know, South Africa is going to is going to be a place where they can kind of have solace, right, in a way, or they're free from the types of repression that they had had faced at home as LGBT citizens. And then they come to South Africa and they're targeted as foreigners. It's also important to remember the the phrasing of your question was, is it a stretch, right, to talk about these things in the same breath? And that's the same in the U.S. as well, right? Yeah, sure. Um, right. right? Because the same people that are stirring up anti-immigrant policy in the U.S. are also chipping away at women's rights. They're chipping away at LGBTQ rights. So it's it's all connected and it and always is. I think you also asked me if I had any potential remedies. <laughs> and I do not. But I do think that thinking of these things as connected um, does help. Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah. <laughs> uh, I think President Ramaphosa has got a lot on his uh, plate to deal with. I want to switch to our second topic. Pope Francis just traveled to Sub-Saharan Africa. This was his second trip. It was interesting. He went to Mozambique, Madagascar, Mauritius. These aren't countries that have huge Catholic populations, significant in Mozambique and Madagascar, but Mauritius has a, a large Hindu population. We often talk about other high-level trips on this show. We've talked about Melania's trip. We've talked about... Speaker Pelosi's trip. So I thought it was fair that we talked about Pope Francis's visit. And there's a couple of facts that I should just probably add to the table before I turn to Mike, which is that Africa has the world's third largest Catholic population after the Americas in Europe. Nearly one out of every five Africans, 19.2%, are Catholic. The Pew Research Center expects the number of African Christians um, south of Sahara, including Catholics, will double by 2050. So There's clearly a reason why the Pope has gone now twice to Sub-Saharan Africa. These countries are are really interesting. And Mike, you're based in Italy. 
So I guess I'm I'm wondering what has been the news coverage where you are around the trip. Pope mentioned climate change. He pressed for peace in Mozambique. He talked about corruption. What's your hot take? Right. Okay. Um, the, I, have, I have a disclaimer. I grew up in Italy, but I'm not resident in Italy anymore. I have been living in London for 13 years. I think the Pope is doing a good job compared to the context where he finds himself within. However, the Vatican State needs really, if he wants to be relevant, uh, the Vatican State needs really to grasp what are the dynamic uh, of the, the current generations. The language, the rhetoric, uh, and also, I guess, the narrative used to place the Vatican in a relevant position in a, in a global debate. So the, the narrative that's been used is not sufficient, is distant. I'm not a religious person, but I understand how spirituality and power works. And that's where I think Vatican State is completely disconnected from what actually young generations want and what a contemporary society is looking for. Yeah, well, I, you know, Mike, I probably gave you a tough question, but just for our listeners, you know, I think there's a lot more that we could say about the role of religion in Africa, but, you know, Catholicism's position is, is fairly vulnerable in sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, Pentecostalism is on the rise, Islam is expanding, and there's these divisions within Catholicism. I, we won't talk about it in depth here, Moving to our main topic today, you know, in our show notes for Into Africa, we say we're about shattering narratives that dominate the U.S. perception of Africa. And sometimes in the show, we don't really hit that mark. We end up doing a lot of foreign policy stuff. So today is the closest we're going to get to that goal. I'm really <laughs> positive because the three people that are here today are dynamic artists who are interpreting or portraying the continent, I think, for music and film and literature. And it's so critical right now. Uh, a colleague of ours just did a, a search on the New York Times and and looked at every article on the New York Times for the past year, and only 20% of them mentioned Africa. And some of those were like crossword puzzles, or it was you know just about African-American individuals. And the ones that were actually, actually about Africa tended to be, as you expect, corruption, natural disaster, disease. Um, I'd love to hear first, Fatih, from you. Is this a goal or are you just expressing yourself? The work that you do on Instagram, which I'm I'm a huge fan of, I think it's not just about, this is my interpretation, it's not just about showing about what life in the shadow of Boko Haram is. I mean, your stuff is about how people live and, and love and work and pray and study. And it's, you present, for me, just a much fuller sense of what life is like. And, you know, the, the Western single narrative is Boko Haram. And I think you're doing an incredible job countering that. And... Maybe you could share, like, how do you, what motivates you? Why, why do you do what you do? I think I was purely just motivated by rage. I was angry at the portrayal of Africans. Every time you look on social media, currently when you Google Medjugorje Borno State, all you see is just Boko Haram. So whenever you tell people you're from Borno State, they always just think, oh, there are dead bodies on the street. Everything is destroyed. They feel like there is no life in that community. So for me, I was enraged by that. And I've seen what has happened with Rwanda, with the genocide, even 20 years later, 
people still talk about the genocide. And that is the image that has been created for a lot of African countries. And that is affecting us in the sense that everyone views you as someone who is traumatized, coming from a traumatized place, and nobody kind of gives you the benefit of telling your own story. So we always have the narrative controlled by the West, and it portrays Africa as diseased, destroyed, dying. So for me, visually, we have to have more than a single narrative. It has to be multidimensional. It is true what is being portrayed, but it is not the only truth. And we want to see more stories coming out of Africa. And in Borno State, I feel that because of the conflict, we have become... I would say stronger, we're showing more resilience. People even one hour after a bomb blast, you see uh, life continues and people still go to the market. We have weddings. And I remember still living there, there would be a bomb blast on one side and I would be on another side buying food. So for me, that strength needs to be portrayed. I want to be viewed as a human being. I'm not a statistic. I'm not traumatized. Uh, you know, I. That's th- not in Borno, that siren you're hearing. <laughs> <laughs> That's wherever Mike is. Go ahead, Fatih. Yeah, so I think the image is incredibly important to see Africans as human beings is more than just a statistic. So that is constantly what drives me to tell our own stories in a humane way, in a dignified way. We are more than just numbers. Well, I really recommend to our listeners that you check out Fatih's work. It's really incredible, inspiring, and, and true. Mike, you know, I learned about your work uh, through Pitchfork, the music website, uh, because Cruda Volta had put out this new compilation, Taxi Sampler, Rhythms and Vibes from the Spirit of Young Africa. The teaser on, on the website was a solid primer for those new to Afrobas Afro Bass, and Ethiopia electronic. I wanted to show off my Zulu. I studied for three <laughs> years, so that's why I can say Kom. I've, I've looked at now a lot of your work, uh, the whole taxi documentary series, you did a film on a London-based producer of, from Ghana who goes back to Accra. You have a great clips on YouTube from Woza Taxi and Taxi Waves that talk about youth culture in Ethiopia, South Africa, and Nigeria. So let me ask you the same question that I, I posed to Fatih. You know, why are you doing what you're doing? Like, what, what are you trying to achieve with your work? Well, I mean, like, of course, I subscribe to everything that Fatih says. So there is a a need and, and there is a desire from our generation to reappropriate a narrative, reposition a narrative where they should be. I have observed what are the challenges with an increasingly visual world, which is narrated um, through screens. And instead of using um, languages and vernacular that are usually used to portray uh, African stories, I've focused on the main literature in Africa, which is music, which is oral history and storytelling in general in Africa, to understand where the young Africans are trying to go, who young Africans are trying to be, and how they are using the tools that are permitted to them to uh, engage in global conversation. So it's, it's, it's about identity, it's about the access, and it's about emotions. The musicians are the first that engage with the advance of technology and the musicians are the first that engage with a specific conversation around the redefinitions of community. So if you think, for example, about, I would say, like a more diverse society, we think about we have advocates of LGBTs, right, for example. This is a conversation that's very strong in Africa at the moment. I think about the Alte movement in Lagos, for example. And what these artists they offer, they offer a conversation that is more fluid, a conversation that is more organic and accepted by uh, young 
language innovations by the peer uh, rather than conversation that imposed from from the top. Mike, I really, I love this expression, right? The literature of Africa is music, but I do have a literature professor here. Uh, <laughs> so I don't know what Lindsay is going to say, but you know what? I think that you do interesting, Lindsay, that's different than Mike and Fati. You're, you're translating some of this creative mm-hmm. output for diff- perhaps for different audiences, maybe the same, but you know, you're working on this monograph on queer film and literature on the continent. Our listeners can read some of your work on Africa is a Country, the, the website, what it drove you to the material, you know, it'd be interesting to hear, especially your insights about the Kenyan film Rafiki, which many of our uh, listeners may know has captured, gotten a lot of controversy, but acclaim as well. So yeah, the, the monograph I'm working on right now is provisionally titled Queer African Cinemas. And I, I actually have been thinking about this for almost a decade. And I came across the topic uh, accidentally. I was working, my first book is called Postcolonial Automobility, and it's about car culture in West Africa. I just Af- ordered it on Amazon. <laughs> Great. Um, it's on car culture in West Africa. I'm a literature and film scholar, so it's through looking at films and novels. And so I was doing research in Ghana and Nigeria, and I collected a whole bunch of Nollywood films. But I kind of stumbled a- across a handful of films, not just one, but a handful of films that had, and this was like 2009 around, that had gay characters. Mm -hmm. And I was really surprised because nobody was talking about this. Nobody was writing about this. There had been a couple of films about the taboo of homosexuality, but they were francophone films. So Carmen Gay, which is um, a beautiful sort of Senegalese version um, remake of the Carmen story. Mm -hmm. Um, And then um, that was was 2001. Um, There was a film from Guinea in 1997 called Dakan, which means destiny, which is also a great film. But so there had been a couple, but basically like you know, just a few of these Francophone films. And Nollywood is part of popular culture. The Francophone films were were art films, uh, mostly circulating in the West at film festivals. And the Nollywood films circulate in Nigeria. I mean, these were films that I was buying off the street in Lagos or in Accra. And so I went um, in 2010 um, with a colleague, Unoma Azua, and we um, research, did research in Nigeria for, um, for about a month or two. And we tried to collect as many of these films as we can. We got... I think a little over 20, and that was in 2010, and we wrote um, an article about representations. And these, I, I, will, I will say that um, these are films that by and large condemn homosexuality. So they have, sometimes not until the very end of the film, so they have the characters wind up being, you know, saved by Jesus or put in jail or sometimes they die. Um, Rafiki is a Kenyan film by Wanyari Kahu, um, which was banned in, um, in Kenya. The Kenyan Film Classification Board has a CEO right now. His name is Ezekiel Matua, and he kind of sees himself as, as this moral policeman. He kind of made a fool out of himself, um, I don't think it was a year or two ago, when he talked about there, that there's gay lions in the Nairobi Park uh, National Park that needed, he said they needed counseling. Oh, <laughs> um, he, he said they needed counseling. They'd been influenced by by gay people who had visited um, the park. And I mean, it's funny, and it's also not because this is the guy that's like, I mean, there's been some- right, He's in charge of he's what's in charge. censored and yeah, what's not. exactly. So he was the one that basically at first he congratulated Kahu because the film got into Khan. It was the first Kenyan film at Khan. And then like the day later, a day later, he he banned the film. He also banned another gorgeous film called Stories of Our Lives, which is put out by the Nest Collective. You know, when Fatih was talking about 
positive images of Africa. This is this is Kahu's thing. Um, Rafiki is beautiful. She calls her art Afro bubblegum, right? Afro that's her, bubblegum. That's her aesthetic, um, just like fun. You know, you, I think you asked about main insight. So my main insight is watch it. Yeah. Um, it's actually available on Amazon Prime now. So you can, you know, you can watch it. How do we show a different Africa? And I think, you know, you and Mike are doing that for your art. And I think, you know, Lindsay, you're helping a, a broader audience, you know, engage with it. Uh, but this is a show about foreign policy. And so the last question is going to go to Fatih. And how does the United States government engage with this? There's these, you know, really interesting youth subcultures that we're, we're talking about. Um, there's probably some pitfalls of U.S. engagement as well. And I think that the United States government and other foreign governments could do a lot better in terms of like recognizing, elevating, engaging. But I also think there's probably some risks. So I know that you're probably often asked to engage. What are some good like rules or what's the ways that you would recommend people think about this? Well, currently what I'm seeing in Nigeria is the U.S. Embassy is kind of very much focused on funding creatives around Nigeria. There are a lot of grants available for creatives to have access to create. I would suggest mainly more workshops and opportunities to study outside of Nigeria so they can see different mediums and also to mingle with other artists globally to have an opportunity to uh, see how it is done. A lot of creatives are ready they're very, you know, uh, enthusiastic about creating these stories. But one issue is the funding, obviously. You don't have access. It's highly competitive. So I would say region to region funding grants for this region and grant for that. For example, if there's a major grant for Nigerian creatives, it is swallowed by Nollywood. For, so for those of us in the North, we don't have access to those grants. And there's also because we're smaller, rising industries, we are not really the focus. So I would say like smaller creative production groups should also be given an opportunity, not just big Nollywood style movies. We also want to create, but we don't have access because we don't have a track record of creating that style of movie. So for me, I'd like to continue more workshops and get funding from foreign agencies and also to kind of have more uh, exhibitions abroad. For us, we would like to see that exchange between the West and with Nigeria especially for northern Nigeria. Nollywood is huge. Kind of both ways, right? Like, I mean, I think the U.S. government's always like, we need to explain America to Africa. Yeah. Uh, and I think that, I hope this is what you're saying, because I agree with it, is that we also need... Uh, Africans to come to America and explain their art and explain their life. Yeah, we usually get a lot of academics going to Nigeria to sort of write about Nigeria, but we also want Nigerians to come to the U.S. to have that exchange with those academics so that they can also, you know, create in their own way an informed, collaborative, you know, workshops so that we can all learn together and then create those positive images by challenging also the West and saying, you know, we understand the need, for example, for literature. We read the books and we see all of the films, but we would also like to get involved in the decision making. What are the films that we we want? What oh, here's the funding, and we want to create those films collaboratively, and we bring it to the U.S. And um, I would say the risk, having said that, exchange programs are wonderful, but we're seeing sort of a migration completely of our creatives to the West. You see people 
people moving to the to Europe. So they they end up being a disconnect or sort of brain drain where they completely settle in the West and there's no continued creation. So that is one of the risks that I'm seeing. It's very appealing to live here, but we would like for them to keep going back and creating more and bringing it to the West as opposed to completely migrating. I think it's also really important, especially if I talk to a lot of LGBT like media organizations, it's also really important that they get funding for films that are African films that are made for Africans. Because a lot of times they get funding for films and then the, there's a condition that it's kind of geared toward a U.S. audience or geared towards, you know, it's the films that the donors want to make. And they're doing amazing things right now. And they're, they're trying to change hearts and minds. They're including church leaders and parents. And the films are talking to the people. People that actually need need to be talked to. So I think that that's really that that's a that's really really key. So thing. I think yeah. I think the but the key words here is exchange, collaboration, freedom of expression, freedom of expression, and but also I think African decision making and African ownership. Those things are a huge part of that process. I want to thank all three of our guests. I, I encourage everyone to look at their work, read their work, listen to their work. Uh, thanks, everyone. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening. We want to have more conversations about Africa. Tell your friends, subscribe to our podcast at Apple Podcasts, or wherever you find good content. You can also check out our analysis and reports at csis.org slash Africa. Thanks. Thanks.